You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Hi, I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, host of Closer to Truth. For more deep discussions of cosmology, consciousness, the multiverse, free will, scientific breakthroughs, raw existence, and much more, I invite you to become a member by signing up at closertotruth.com. Registration is totally free, and you'll get benefits like early access to new episodes, tailored video recommendations, discounts on events and programs, and inside updates via our email newsletters. Again, sign up for free membership at closertotruth.com and click on Join. We appreciate your support of Closer to Truth, and we're excited for you to see what we've got coming up this year. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with Sarah Manning Peskin about her engrossing new book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Riveting stories, really, of the brain on the brink, as they say, patients suffering extraordinarily mental impairment, accompanied by fascinating stories of scientists who made key discoveries in solving the medical mysteries. I really loved reading it. Welcome, Sarah. What's a hijacked brain? So I guess we could think about it in lots of sorts of ways, but in the in the book, I really talk about it as brains that have been co-opted by single molecules. And so we have this idea of our brains being very resilient, and they are, but there are all sorts of diseases where a, a single type of molecule can actually overthrow our entire system. And so the book really captures those diseases, both what's the patient experience and also how did scientists figure out you know, what was going on? And the idea is that this really lays the groundwork for how we're gonna cure more common things. So this is how we're gonna find a cure for Alzheimer's disease and uh, you know, Parkinson's disease and all these other things. It's on the basis of these more rare conditions. Yeah, I love the way you interspersed in each category, the, uh, um, the patients in, in some depth, we really got to know them, they became our friends and then the, scientists and their struggles uh, oftentimes uh, in unusual circumstances uh, to discover um, what was the what was the the problem oftentimes ridiculed uh, in the process yeah and i think as i was working on the book that kind of became the name of the game i think i had no concept of how these scientists essentially were totally unrecognized in a lot of cases um, wow. and uh, and many of them died before they really got the recognition that they uh, that they deserved well, you're, you're giving it to some of them, so we like that. <laughs> uh, let, let's start uh, by giving a kind of an overarching summary of the book in terms of uh, your core ideas, uh, issues, uh, and the flow of the argument, uh, and then the overall conclusions. Let's just do it very briefly, you know, just for a few minutes uh, so we can all get oriented. Yeah, so the idea is, is basically to establish that neurology is going to go the way of oncology of cancer science. The way that they made lots of advances in treating cancer is that they started figuring out that each cancer has particular molecules, and then you find a treatment that targets that molecule. It's really hard to study the brain because you can't access it. You can't take a piece of brain tissue out and look at it under a microscope, in most cases in living people. But uh, in these diseases that I talk about, you actually can get to a molecular diagnosis. You can figure out what molecule is causing the disease. And, and that's thanks to the work of these uh, impressive scientists who, as we talked about, often went uh, 
really without recognition were ridiculed, spent all their money on this yeah, and, and got not much back. And uh, so the premise of the book is that this is the groundwork for treating the most common neurologic diseases that we all know and recognize in everyday life. Um, and it's broken down in sort of four different, uh, four different categories when you think about what are the types of molecules that really cause us problems. The first I called uh, mutants, and these are uh, conditions that are caused by mutations in DNA. The second category I called rebels, and these are caused by uh, proteins that have kind of gone rogue. We think of proteins basically as the, the workhorses of, uh, of our bodies, but sometimes they can actually attack us. Um, and then the last, uh, or the second to last, um, was uh, invaders. So these are toxins and things that are there when they shouldn't be. And evaders, those are things where we, we need them and, uh, and they're absent, and that's what causes us a problem. Great. Well, we're going to get to each in detail. Uh, let me first give a brief uh, bio. Uh, Sarah Manning Paskin is a cognitive neuroscientist. She is assistant professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. The New York Times review of her book, an excellent review, said, Paskin writes about these conditions and the patients consumed by them with a grace and humanity that recall Oliver Sacks. That's high praise indeed, Sarah. That's great. Uh, what, what motivated you to become, as you call it, a dementia doctor? I think as I was thinking about specialties, um, the best advice I got was someone said, you know, look, when you open the exam door, who do you want to see on the table? And uh, the exam room door, you know, who do you want to see on the table? And I realized that what I was actually interested in is conditions where people's identities change. And we all sort of think of our brains as this thing that's very fixed. You know, it's a, I'm an introvert or an extrovert, or um, I'm type A or I'm more relaxed. But it turns out that those things that we depend on are not actually as fixed as you really assume. Um, and I really became fascinated with this idea of treating people where their identities are slowly changing. Um, and it's both you know, medically interesting, um, it's emotionally evocative and engaging, um, and it's really, you know, it's also a, a very social field because these play out in families. This is not a, you know, a broken arm and you can set the arm and the person goes on and is fine. Um, this is you know, a couple struggling with this or you know, a parent and child or a child with, you know, a child struggling with it and their parents, um, you know, watching. Um, and so I liked all those different layers of, um, of the area. Yeah, the, um, the issue of course, is that because of the nature of the subject that the prognosis in the large majority of cases, maybe almost all is, is not good. Uh, so you have to live with these patients as you've described very eloquently in the book. Uh, through this uh, process of, and with a family of uh, a slow or rapid uh, decline, uh, often uh, to, to death. Yeah, and people sort of talk about it as, um, you know, someone comes into your house and steals a fork and you don't care because you have plenty of forks. And then they come in and they steal a pot, but you have other pots, you know, and then they steal the blender. And it's just this sort of slow loss. And um, and one of the best things that a caregiver told me was basically, you know, it's a, you know, there's this idea of ambiguous loss in this. Um, it's not a car crash. It's not a heart attack. It's this mm -hmm. very slow change. And uh, and this caregiver once said to me, you know, nobody brings over a casserole when your husband forgets your name. Um, so it's a totally different um, than uh, than people deal with often. Yeah. yeah. And um, and part of my job is kind of guiding people along that path. Yeah. And the satisfaction you get from from seeing patients uh, 
when you know you are helping them as much as possible and, and with your approach and demeanor, perhaps greatly more than most, and yet they see a constant decline. So you're, you're part of a process in which the patient and their, fa- or at least the patient's family uh, are not happy. And uh, th- does that affect your own psychology? So on the surface, you would think it does, but I think actually what's so redeeming about it is actually seeing how families adapt to this. I mean, some of these diseases are, you know, some people think of them as like, you know, this is the worst thing I could ever imagine happening to me, right, some people right. will say. Um, and yet there's a resilience um, and there's sort of, I think people are surprised to you know to see that, you know, there's joy after a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. It's not that life ends. It's not that you're no longer cared for at all by the medical system. Um, it's that this evolves. It's a moving target. Um, new things come up all the time. And the more flexible that caregivers are, the better they actually end up uh, doing. Um, so actually, most of the time, it's uplifting. Yeah, that, that's really great, uh, because I think people, we often focus on the patient uh, we don't fo- focus on the, the physician uh, herself or himself. A, a dermatologist that I went to once told me a, a lament. Um, she said that uh, when she gives uh, plas- uh, um, cosmetic uh, uh, applications, Botox or fillers or whatever, uh, she gets enormous praise. Uh, and she was talking about a specific patient. She didn't mention the name, of course. Uh, and that what disturbed her is that one time she found at a very early stage melanoma on this patient and got it and saved her life, basically. And the patient had absolutely almost nothing to say, like, thank, you know, barely wasn't even a thank you. It was like an annoyance. Um, and so th- that really struck her as a very powerful in- indication of our of the human psyche that because the filler gave an immediate positive satisfaction, the melanoma was, you know, getting back to zero because she didn't know she had it. And then she had it and then she didn't. So she she didn't appreciate what the doctor had done. And that disturbed her, disturbed the doctor. Yeah, that makes total sense. And and you sort of see that. I remember when I was in medical school, there was something that came out that um, the neurosurgeons had been getting sort of worse reviews from patients. And they sort of said, well, there's no nice way to say, you know, there's no easy way to say you're going to need brain surgery. Um, it's, it's a tall task. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I think it is true that you sometimes see gratitude changes. And when you give someone a diagnosis that they you know, didn't want to ever get, they don't want the symptoms, they don't want the ramifications. Um, sometimes early on, you do see that sort of mix up between, um, you know, the care you're getting and the disease that you've gotten and that they, those are coming from different sources. Um, but, um, but most of the time, most of the patients we have and the caregivers we have are, um, they're wonderful. They really are, um, they're quite devoted, um, and, uh, and seeing them get over these bumps is actually pretty impressive. That's great. All right. Well, let's, let's get into the book. Uh, we want to go into each of the categories you mentioned, you call them, uh, uh, molecule villains, which is kind of cute. Uh, the mutants, the rebels, the invaders, and the evaders. Uh, you told us what each means in general. So let's start with the mutants, uh, altered DNA sequences. Uh, you, you use two examples. Let's discuss each of those examples a little bit. Uh, Huntington's disease and frontotemporal dementia. So in the chapter about Huntington's disease, uh, one of the big stories I talk about is the story of Nancy Wexler, who's one of the preeminent Huntington's disease researchers. And uh, she's a woman who has a, a pretty remarkable life story. 
Um, so she was uh, exceedingly smart, uh, went to you know, a wonderful school, went off and did a Fulbright scholarship. And then she's in France on vacation and her dad calls her and says, um, you know, Nancy, I'd like you to come home for my birthday. And she realizes her dad's not a sentimental guy. And she sort of very quickly realizes, you know, something's up. This doesn't, you know, this doesn't smell right. Um, but sure enough, she flies home uh, to California for his birthday. Her sister also meets her there and they sit down on the couch. And her dad basically says, um, your mother has Huntington's disease and you have a 50% chance of getting it. And um, at that moment, uh, she basically decides that she's going to change her life around. Um, and she had been, uh, she was enrolling in a, a um, PhD program in psychology. And she actually decides to do her PhD on Huntington's disease. And then she, in collaboration also with her dad, start putting together workshops to try to find a cure for the disease. And they very astutely realize that if you want to find a cure, you first have to find the cause. So they knew it's genetics. They know it's somewhere in the DNA, but you have no idea where in this you know, 3 billion uh, nucleotide genetic code the actual problem is that causes Huntington's disease. And so um, what they did, which was so smart, is they got together scientists from different fields because uh, they said, you know, the problem is, this is a, a, a sort of a, a issue that needs to be addressed from lots of different subfields. And uh, so they got these people together in these small workshops and there was rules. It was like less than you know, 10 or 15 people per workshop. And you weren't allowed to bring slide sets because they didn't want people to just you know, click through what they know. And they brought people. Uh, it was sort of a mix of different uh, expertise in each workshop. And eventually they actually settle on a idea for how they're going to find the Huntington's disease gene. And, uh, and there was incredible controversy at this workshop uh, where basically some of the people said, um, you know, this approach will take more than a decade. Um, you can't tell families that we're looking for it because we're never going to find it and you're giving them false hope. Um, but she basically decides to go on and, uh, and help fund a few scientific uh, researchers to, to find the gene. And actually, it took about three years. Um, so it was actually much faster than they expected. Uh, it was this huge sensation. That part got them down to you know, realizing it was on chromosome four. So we all have different chromosomes and different genes are on different chromosomes. And with that research, they realized it was on chromosome four. And then in 1993, they actually got the actual sequence of the gene. Um, so it was actually Nancy Wexler's research that set the stage for genetic testing for Huntington's disease. And the, the sort of interesting part about it is she never decided to, to take the test. Um, so um, years passed and she basically said, you know, look, I have a lot more to lose by taking the test than I have to gain. Um, and so she never took it. Um, and it turned out eventually she started developing writhing movements. Um, and uh, it started becoming apparent that she actually had developed Huntington's disease. Um, and, uh, and eventually she started talking about it. She's talked about it in a, in a big article in the New York Times. Um, and her sister uh, has not developed the symptoms. Um, and uh, so it's just sort of a remarkable story of someone changing their entire life around to study a disease that they had not intended to study um, and um, that they're at risk for, and then ultimately developing the disease that they pioneered. Describe some of the symptoms so we can appreciate the seriousness of the disease. Yeah, so Huntington's disease is unusual because um, a lot of the early symptoms look psychiatric. So you can see people become extremely obsessive um, or very irritable. Um, sometimes people will end up using substances. You'll have someone who has never really had an addictive personality and suddenly they're becoming you know, a, a heroin addict. 
Um, and it turns out that the issue is not, uh, you know, actually sort of a primary psychiatric diathesis. It's actually a, a genetic problem. Um, and over time, eventually, people develop these sort of writhing movements. And the way I describe it in the book is almost like there's sort of a current of electricity going through the limbs. Um, and it's called Korea. So the, it's actually called Huntington's Korea. And then over time, it also leads to dementia. So people end up developing cognitive impairment and, and functional impairment. Um, and then ultimately it leads to, to death at an early age. Uh, and um, comparing Huntington's and Alzheimer's or dementia, uh, the, the similarities are uh, the cognitive aspects, but Huntington has these other physical attributes as well? Yeah. So, that, I mean, at a, at a sort of causative level, the big difference is Huntington's disease is always caused by what's called an expansion. So it's caused by a change in the genetic code in a particular gene every time to the point where you can actually test someone who looks totally normal and has no symptoms. You can look at that gene and say, you know, look, if you live on long enough, you're definitely going to develop the disease. Alzheimer's disease genetics is quite different. So Alzheimer's disease, there's very rare cases that are caused by a mutation in a single gene. There's really only about three genes that do this. Um, and less than 1% of cases actually are attributable to a single gene. So, you know, we all know folks who've suffered from Alzheimer's disease, the vast, vast majority of them, you can't point to a single gene and say, this is what caused the problem. There are we, the other type of genes that you think about with Alzheimer's disease are called risk genes. And the big one that's the most has the most sort of powerful effect and the first one to be discovered is called APOE. And, but there's actually more like 70 or 80 or more risk genes. And so if you have different versions of these genes, your risk of Alzheimer's disease is you know, a little more or a little less, but they're not you know, 100%. So you couldn't look at someone's genetics with those genes and say, you're going to get the disease, you're not going to get the disease. So that's sort of a fundamental difference between the, the conditions. Symptomatically, um, the movements that you get in Huntington's disease, you don't typically get in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and in some ways, the pattern of cognitive symptoms can be a little bit different as well. Um, but, uh, but really, fun, the sort of most fundamental thing is that at causative level, they're a little bit different. What are the, um, the, the range of uh, first signs of, of Huntington's uh, disease? Uh, what's the age range, the normal that you, that you begin to see it in, begin to manifest it seriously? So there's a huge range and it's actually connected to the actual genetic problem. So Huntington's disease is caused by what's called an expansion. So it's basically, um, you have your genes and it's sort of, um, it's written in this genetic code and the letters are A, T, G, and C. And in Huntington's disease, you actually have these letters that just repeat multiple times and they repeat too many times. And that's what causes the disease. And it turns out that the more repeats you have, the earlier the disease starts. And right. so you can actually have people who have a enormous, enormous amount of, uh, of repeats and they can get what's called juvenile Huntington's disease. They can get it even as, as children. And then you can have people who have, you know, just over the border of abnormal and they may get it later. Um, and there's this phenomenon called anticipation. So uh, the thought is that uh, in each generation, people tend to get the disease a little bit earlier because as the, the gene gets copied um, from uh, at conception, um, you actually end up getting more repeats. So it uh, unfortunately can strike earlier with each generation. You know, closer to truth, we deal with uh, questions of uh, theism and atheism with arguments for both. And uh, one argument for atheism that I heard a long time ago actually used Huntington's disease, Huntington's Korea, 
time uh, to prove that God does not exist because it was not only a, a terrible disease, which is normally, you know, the problem of evil as an atheistic argument, but it was malevolent and malicious because most people who got it at that, at least at that time, were older and had already had children. Uh, and so it was like uh, uh, deliberately tormenting people. Now, I think this argument wasn't a very good one then for various reasons, but but now with, with genetic testing, it becomes less so. But but it struck me that, that that's, you know, the disease in general is part of the problem of evil. But Huntington's disease in particular was used in this unique way. I never forgot that. That's so interesting. I've never heard of it uh, thinking that I've never heard of thinking that way. It's interesting because now I think of it as such a like purely scientific thing because it's so well established. Yeah, but yeah. So, uh, that's so interesting to think of it as an example for atheism. <laughs> yeah, because of the malicious nature of it, because you by the time you have it, you've already had children, you already passed it on. And so it's 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 like it's like uh, uh, tormenting you in addition to the disease. All right, let's move on to uh, temporal uh, uh, frontotemporal dementia. Uh, when I did my Ph.D. in neurophysiology, I, I focused a little bit on the frontal lobes, but 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 not not on not but more evoked potentials, you know, Kind of classic neuro, neuroscience, not uh, cognitive neuroscience. But what what I found interesting is you you contrast two different ways of thinking about mental diseases: focal and diffuse. Focal being if you have an injury to the temporal lobe, you may you may lose your capacity to understand language, so it's very specific. And the occipital lobe, you might lose your sight, so that's focal. And diffuse to the more general. You said the importance of uh, from a scientific point of view of of uh, of um, frontotemporal. You said there's something sort of special about this that that is neither focal nor diffuse so the the remarkable thing with frontotemporal dementia is the way that it changed the paradigm and um, so the guy who really did the pioneering work was this guy named arnold pick um, and uh, and he worked in prague in this asylum that was sort of underfunded and overcrowded and he didn't have enough money for microscopic studies so really his big contribution was picking out these unusual patients and writing about them. And uh, at the time, the thought was that dementia was basically a process that affected the entire brain. So if you think about, you know, you put an ice cube in a warm room and the entire thing just melts. It's not like, you know, one corner melts or another corner melts, assuming that the heat is well distributed. And the thought was that that's how dementia worked. It just sort of melts the entire brain. But what Pick really very astutely figured out um, is that there were these patients who had these particular cognitive syndromes. And when they would pass away, he would look at their brains because there's no imaging then. So you can never actually figure out what's going on until the person dies. But he would look at their brains and one part of the brain will have melted and one of the part, one, another part of the brain would look relatively normal. So it was this focal process. And before that, the idea was basically the only thing focal is essentially a stroke or an injury. Um, so, you know, if you get a, uh, a nail through the side of the head, then that's focal um, to, to reference, a, you know, a famous case. Um, but, uh, you know, if you have dementia, it's essentially diffuse. And what what Pick showed is that dementia itself can actually be a focal process. So there's no stroke. There's no injury. Um, but for some reason, which we now understand, but they didn't get as much then, um, 
these conditions can cause a part of the brain to get small while the rest of the brain is okay. And uh, it causes these unusual symptoms. So the, the patient that I write about um, in the book was a patient who started having difficulty with language. And it's a condition that we now know as uh, semantic primary progressive aphasia. Um, but essentially, you start losing the connections between words and the objects that they signify. So when you were a kid, someone taught you that, you know, the sound apple signifies a fruit that's green or red and has a skin and it's crunchy. But there's nothing inherent about the sound apple that actually is intrinsic to the actual object. You just made that connection. Um, and it turns out that's largely housed in what's called the temporal pole. So you have your temporal lobes that kind of come forward by your ears. And it's the very tip of that. Um, and that's the part of the brain that tends to be affected by this. And so people start losing the connection between words and the objects that they signify. So you'll have people who say, um, you know, my husband told me to put this on the on the island and I, I couldn't remember what the island is. Or um, I have a, a person who does lots of gardening and she said, you know, I was talking to a friend and they mentioned mulch and I just couldn't quite figure out what mulch is. Um, and so you just lose that concept. And then over time, you start losing an idea of the object itself. Um, so uh, you may have someone who's a chef and suddenly they pick up a can opener and they don't know what to do with it. Because um, you had to be taught that as a child, that's housed in a place in your brain and that starts getting lost in this condition. And so PIC essentially established this idea that dementia can be a focal process. Um, and that was just a huge contribution. And uh, he kind of had a beef with uh, Alzheimer who lived around the same time. And Alzheimer is actually the one who discovered the sort of the uh, initial micro or did the initial microscopic work on the disease. But eventually one of Pick's students basically booted Alzheimer's out of the history and, and, uh, and called everything Pick's disease. Um, so it's sort of a, uh, also a, a good uh, historical example of a scientific feud. <laughs> Okay, but a very, but a, but a very serious contribution to understanding the whole process of how dementia works. Let, let's go on to the the rebels, the aberrant uh, proteins that can cause psychosis. Uh, you talk about Creutzfeldt's uh, Jacob disease, another terrible disease. Yeah, so um, this is really a um, a new model for neurologic disease. And uh, it, the story goes back to initially the 1950s, um, and there was this guy Vincent Zegas, and he was a public health worker. He'd been born in Estonia uh, and then he'd sort of trained in Europe and ultimately decided he wants to get out of Europe. Uh, goes to Australia, joins the public health service there and then gets sent to Papua New Guinea, to the highlands of Papua New Guinea. He talks about in, in a book that he, he was initially told he's just gonna be sort of do medicine and he gets there and there's like, there's no other sort of uh, trained physician. He starts learning how to do surgery um, and uh, he really becomes very sort of uh, involved in the community. Um, and a few years goes by and he meets uh, this person who starts talking about this disease called Kuru. And Ziga sort of says, you know, look, I'm the physician in the area. I, I should know what this is, but I've never heard of this. And the person who's telling him about it says, look, it's, it's this relatively new disease and uh, it's affecting women and children and it causes them to laugh uncontrollably. It causes them to shake and then it, it kills them. And uh, the guy says, well, you know, Zegas, I'll, you know, well, I'll, I'll show you the disease. So he sends someone uh, to pick Zegas up at his cottage and they go off into the highlands and they start seeing people with the disease. And nobody knows what's causing it, yeah, but it seems to be spreading and it seems to affect mainly this one tribe called the Four Tribe. 
And uh, so Zegas comes back, he writes letters to people all over the world saying like, have you ever seen anything like this? I have no idea what this is. Can you help me? Doesn't get anything back. And he does another trip and he sends out more letters. And eventually um, he actually has another scientist join him. And uh, they set up shop in the middle of the highlands, kind of in this cottage. And uh, they start meeting with people from the tribe and uh, folks start contributing the brains of people who have died from the disease. Um, so it becomes this really collaborative effort. So Zegas and his partner start you know, making microscopic, making uh, yeah, sort of slides of uh, samples from people who died of this disease and they send it out uh, to the US and to other places and they actually put together a exhibit at a museum in London and they start finally getting a little bit of help. So they have someone from uh, the US who says, you know, look at a microscopic level, this looks a lot like this disease, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which was discovered in the 20s. Um, it was named after Creutzfeldt, who was sort of a, a Nazi, and Jakob, who uh, was a victim of the Nazis. Uh, but, and, uh, and so this guy says, uh, you know, look, maybe there's a connection between them, but we don't know what causes Creutzfeldt-Jakob either. So it's a little helpful, but doesn't get you to the answer. Uh, and then the, at this exhibit in London, where they show pictures of the microscopic findings in Kuru, uh, there's actually a veterinarian who says, you know, I study this disease in sheep, and this looks a lot like what I see in the sheep's brains. And uh, so that sort of brings together the trifecta of these initial diseases that are called spongiform encephalopathies, because basically under a microscope, it looks like a sponge. It looks like spots of the brain has kind of melted away. And the disease essentially, you know, nobody can quite figure out what's causing it. Um, and uh, eventually some anthropologists start to, to give a hand and they actually figure out that uh, the way that Kuru was being spread uh, was in the brains of people who had died from it. So it turned out that the, the, tr the tradition in the four tribe was what's called endocannibalism. So when someone from their own tribe died, they would eat the brain. And it was typically after the funerary practice, uh, the women would eat the brain and they would bring the extras home for the children. And so that's why it hit women and children. And so they figured out sort of the anthropologic explanation, um, but they still didn't know what was going on at a microscopic level. Initially, the thought was this was infectious, but it didn't really behave like an infectious disease from a epidemiologic perspective. Um, and so it went on sale for a long time. Um, and then this uh, neurologist in the 80s started looking at the disease. And what he realized actually is that, you know, this was a infectious disease, but it wasn't caused by any of the typical agents. So you think of infections, you know, if you go to the hospital and you have a pneumonia, you worry about a bacteria or a virus, or maybe it's a fungus or some things can be caused by a parasite. But there's nothing like that in, in this disease, uh, in Kuru, in Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, in Scrapey. And what this scientist, uh, Stanley Prusner, discovers is that the infectious agent is actually a protein. Um, and so proteins are so much smaller. You know, all of these things, these big cells like bacteria and viruses, they have, you know, millions and billions of proteins in them. But here it's actually, it's this super small entity. It's a protein that's causing the infection. And people said, you know, that doesn't make any sense because a protein can't replicate. You know, how could it cause, to cause an infection? You have to be able to, you know, divide and multiply. So how could a protein do it? And what Prusner really discovered is that it's a matter of protein folding. So proteins have these incredibly complex three-dimensional structures, and that's what allows them to do their work. And there are certain proteins where um, they misfold, and then they have this special power to cause other proteins to misfold. And there's a journalist who basically describes it as a room full of mousetraps. 
Um, so if you have a room full of mousetraps and one goes off, you know, they'll all go off. And it's basically the same idea. Um, and uh, Prusner was really ridiculed at the beginning um, and now has been, you know, won a Nobel Prize for it, which is about, you know, as much validation as, uh, as you can get for, uh, for your work. Um, and, uh, and now it's become really very well accepted that that's what these diseases are caused by. And he sort of moved on to saying, you know, maybe all of these even more common diseases actually have some relation to this protein problem. He calls them prion, which is a combination of protein and infection. And the thought is, you know, maybe that's also a part of the pathology for Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. And that's become controversial because that many people don't accept that. Exactly. It's very, very controversial. Um, but it's also led to some work. There's a condition called Lewy body disease. Um, and some of the tests that you use for, for prion diseases are actually now being used as uh, potential tests for Lewy body disease. So it's just sort of um, expanded the field uh, incredibly. And, uh, and you're exactly right. It's, it's really quite controversial still. in other Yeah, but it's, it, it's very good to expand, challenge, to challenge current belief, expand our thinking, because uh, you never know where the truth is going to lie. And, and it's very good to find people with, with passion for their own ideas and let it be tested in the marketplace of, uh, of, uh, of uh, scientific discovery and uh, critique. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go on to the invaders, these foreign substances. Uh, we no normally think of environmental uh, pollution or uh, toxic drugs or things that can uh, um, uh, enter the body that have these uh, dramatic cognitive impact. Uh, mercury is the ex one of the examples you use. Yeah. So the, the story I tell in the book actually has to do with, um, with Abraham Lincoln. There's been speculation that he may have suffered from, from mercury poisoning. And the idea was brought up by uh, this uh, actually infectious disease doctor named Norbert Hirschhorn. And he uh, is, became extraordinarily famous actually for developing uh, oral rehydration therapy. So he's credited with saving millions of lives. Uh, and on the side, he's a, a medical historian. And so he was reading uh, Gorbadal's novel, Lincoln, one day, and he reads this excerpt that basically talks about uh, someone mentioning Lincoln taking a substance called blue mass. And Hirschhorn, who uh, is now, I think, in his, in his 80s or 90s, in medical school, had actually learned about blue mass, which is long off the market and not used anymore. But he had learned that the key ingredient in, in uh, blue mass is mercury. And so he started wondering, you know, maybe that's actually, you know, clinically significant. And if you go back, there's actually there's a fair amount of accounts of Lincoln supposedly using blue mass, and it was used pretty frequently then. Um, it, there's some debate about why he used it. You know, there's some thought he used it for constipation. There's another thought that he used it for depression. Um, and uh, and sort of most convincingly is this quote from one of his close colleagues uh, that Lincoln was using blue mass uh, up until the point he got elected. And then soon after he became president, he stopped using it. And the quote is because it made him cross. And so it's implying that Lincoln suffered a, you know, a medication side effect. Yeah. And we think of Lincoln as being essentially in the same state as his statue, sort of emotionally immovable, incredibly level headed, uh, you know, thoughtful. You can, I think if we all imagine having ever asked him a question, you would think there'd be a long pause before he would answer. Um, and that's our image of him. Um, but when you look back, there's actually stories of him being relatively sort of uh, rash and uh, and quick to anger. Yeah. So there's a story of him when he was do working on his last case before he uh, before he stopped practicing law. Uh, there was a piece of evidence that he wanted to get admitted, and the judge basically said, "We're not going to admit it." 
and he erupted and actually uh, lunged over the uh, the judge's sort of uh, barrier. Um, and they, the accounts are like, it looked like he was sort of a, a, a lion that was about to attack. Um, and there's a story from the Lincoln-Douglas debates where he's on the stage and uh, someone accuses him of not supporting the troops uh, in a war. And he basically looks to someone else on the stage and says, you know, you have to defend me. And he drags them up by their neck and shakes them. And his bodyguard basically has to pull him off. Um, so there's these stories of him acting very un-Lincoln-like. And uh, the idea that Hirschhorn had is that, you know, maybe these are actually triggered by mercury toxicity, which we know can cause this volatility. So they actually, um, they went back to the pharmacology textbooks from the era and uh, and uh, Hirschhorn and one of his colleagues actually recreated blue mass in a laboratory. And they did some sort of simulation and they could have tested on people, but they uh, did some simulations and they basically figured out that it would, it would give people uh, a really quite toxic amount of mercury at the dose that people were prescribing uh, in that era. And ultimately, it comes down to speculation because you can't prove it. You know, if the idea is that Lincoln stopped taking it uh, soon after he got elected, then by the time he's assassinated, any samples from, uh, you know, from his body from that point wouldn't have mercury anymore because it would have been so many years later. Um, so we'll sort of we'll never really know what the uh, what the truth is behind it. Um, but it just sort of, I think, brings up the idea of you know, side effects that we, you know, most people take some sort of prescribed medication and we don't really think about how it affects our relationships. Hmm. Good. Let's uh, move on to the evaders and uh, vitamins, which you tell the story of uh, wonderfully is uh, is the classic case. And what, what's always fascinating is some of these diseases have multiple symptoms. They look very complicated. But if you isolate this fairly small molecule that, that is a vitamin, it can quickly and immediately cure all these complicated things. You use the story of uh, thiamine, uh, vitamin B1 deficiency, uh, and a, uh, a fascinating story with uh, Joseph of, uh, Goldberger uh, cu curing pellagra uh, with his uh, filth experiment. So you're going to tell us this whole, the whole story of vitamins. The story of, uh, of pellagra with Joseph Goldberger uh, is sort of a wild story. So the disease itself um, causes... Uh, dermatitis, so it causes a rash, usually on the areas that are exposed to the sun. So it's on the face, on the hands, sort of on the neck. And it causes terrible diarrhea and it causes dementia. And it had existed in Europe for some time. Uh, and the thought, it was sort of often in, in Italy, um, and people thought it was caused by spoiled corn. But the thought was that essentially that North America was immune to it, or that the United States was basically immune to the disease. But in the early 1900s, they start seeing pellagra crop up in orphanages and prisons um, in uh, sort of relatively impoverished areas in the south, primarily in the southeastern U.S. And uh, the disease really scares people because it's deadly and we don't really know what's causing it. There's this idea that it's caused by spoiled corn, but no one's ever really proved it. And the disease starts getting more and more common. Um, and uh, initially, it's really in, you know, among poor people. And uh, so it's not getting that much attention. And then it starts sort of spreading even outside. So you have people who are, you know, farmers who are starting to get it. And, uh, and you get headlines in the national news that basically say, you know, this killer, this, you know, murderer of a disease uh, is exploding in, 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 uh, in incidents. They start getting uh, influence from a Italian uh, infectious disease doctor who basically says, you know, this is not caused by a toxin in spoiled corn. It's actually caused by an infection that's transmitted by flies. 
And he basically says it with no evidence, but he gained some fame for some other reasons. And so people listen to him. And people also like that idea because you basically could say, you know, look, here's a disease that affects poor people and it's caused by their terrible sanitation and it's their fault. And so the government doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. So it became a much easier problem to tackle when you could blame it on the victims. But again, there's no proof and there's no treatment and it starts getting more and more common. So finally, in the, the early 1910s, um, the Surgeon General calls on this guy, Joseph Goldberger, and says, can you give us a hand? And Goldberger uh, had come to the U.S. at age nine, speaking no English. And uh, he'd worked delivering uh, groceries for his father's grocery store in the Lower East Side. And there was the story that he would like hide books in his coat. So he would deliver some groceries and then hide in the hallway and do some reading and then go back. And um, so he was always very sort of, of a, he was always a uh, sort of curious guy. He went to medical school, tried to practice and couldn't make enough money and then had joined the public health service. And he'd already contracted many of the diseases that he had studied. So he'd gotten yellow fever, he'd gotten typhus, he'd gotten typhoid. And uh, that was sort of the accepted thing is, you know, when you take on an assignment, you may be, you know, you're not just studying it, you're becoming part of the uh, part of it. And uh, but nevertheless, uh, he agrees to take on this assignment to study pellagra. And so he starts where he always starts, which is at the library. That's where he always uh, sort of bases all of his projects. And he starts reading about these conferences that have been done uh, on Pellagra where people have gathered and given lectures. And he very quickly realizes that um, this can't be an infectious disease because you have all these hospitals taking care of people with Pellagra, but the staff at the hospitals never gets it. So you can imagine if all these people and the staff are getting bitten by the same flies, because uh, the staff often lives with, you know, they live in the same place, they often live with their patients. Um, you know, how is it that only the patients are getting the disease? And so he very quickly says, you know, look, I think this is a problem in the diet, but he's not convinced that this is a toxin in corn. He actually starts thinking about maybe it's, you know, a problem where they're, you know, people's diets are missing something. Maybe that's what causes pellagra. But he, he's not quite sure and he's not quite sure what they'd be missing. So the, the first experiment he does is he goes to a orphanage and he changes up the food. So they were eating tons of corn-based products. And he says, you know, instead of corn, why don't we have, you know, eggs and beans and, uh, and all sorts of other sort of uh, richer foods. And sure enough, he basically eradicates pellagra from the orphanage. And so he says, you know, look, I've, I've treated the disease. This is, this is the best you can hope for. Um, but the government says, you know, that's a very expensive treatment to suddenly feed everyone and to feed everyone nutritionally sort of hefty uh, food. And so uh, nobody really pays much attention to his recommendations. So then he says, all right, I'm going to go prove that I can actually cause pellagra. So he goes to a prison that happened to have a very diverse diet and he looks for volunteers uh, to uh, volunteer for his six month study. He needs 12 volunteers, 80 people volunteer um, and uh, he chooses 12 of them. And it turns out they say, basically, this is the worst experience of my entire life being part of this study. They eat uh, grits and molasses and basically these uh, incredibly sort of uh, carbohydrate rich, but nutrient devoid foods for six months. And in the end, they kind of hobble into uh, into the office to get their uh, their uh, release from prison. And the Jackson Daily News uh, essentially publishes this article that says they ate their way to freedom. So it's sort of obviously a very sort of morally uh, complicated study or morally uh, complex and problematic study. Um, but uh, but that's how they proved that changing diet could cause pellagra. Yeah. But still, they don't get the attention that uh, that they need. And so pellagra or so uh, Goldberger basically says, 
I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to show you that this is not an infectious disease. So he does a series of experiments. Uh, the first one he does, he takes a sample of blood from a patient with pellagra and he injects it into his own shoulder and the shoulder of a, a very uh, of a, a very devoted colleague. And uh, they say, you know, look, our, our shoulders were really sore for a little bit, um, but otherwise we were okay. So he gets a little bit bolder and he um, starts making these tablets, these pills, and he makes them by uh, scraping off scales from pellagra patients' rashes. And he takes their stool and their urine and he mixes it all up and puts it into a tablet and ingests it. And he gets more and more of his colleagues to, to volunteer. And even his wife, actually, who they've, they've had sort of a rocky relationship because he's always going off to, uh, you know, different states or different countries to study these diseases and, uh, and potentially die from them. And she's sort of stuck home with the kids. But she finally says, you know, I want to participate. So he won't let her smell, swallow the tablets, um, but he does take a, a sample of blood from someone with pellagra. It had to be a, a female patient with pellagra, lest you would mix. Uh, but so he takes the blood from a female patient with pellagra and injects it into her abdomen. So eventually, uh, about six months after they do these experiments, uh, he writes up this report with this kind of comical conclusion that basically says, you know, considering the amount of filth that we took in, it's pretty amazing that none of us got pellagra. And so uh, he sort of says, look, I've put to bed this idea that this is a infection. He goes on to do another set of experiments. And finally, the world basically accepts that he's correct. And so then he goes on to say, you know, look, I I got to find out what the actual missing ingredient is that's causing this disease. And so he uses this model of dogs that have a similar disease that's called black tongue. And he basically takes lots of different foods and he says, you know, which of these foods can cure the disease in dogs with the thought that, you know, maybe the foods that can cure it are they all have something in common at a molecular level. And he gets far enough to say, you know, look, I think it's caused by a deficiency in some sort of B vitamin. You know, we all know when you go to the drugstore, there's you could get a, you know, a multi B complex. There's B12, there's B1. At that point, they didn't really know about all of those. Um, but he says, you know, look, I think it's, it's something in that complex. Um, but he can't quite put his finger on what it is. And then he actually uh, dies. Yeah, so he never gets to the very bottom of it. Uh, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize four times in his life, but never won. And uh, he uh, ultimately sort of gets to that nearly to the end of saying it's it's a deficiency in a B vitamin and uh, and that's it. And then it turns out that it's other scientists uh, who figure out that it's a, a division, a deficiency in vitamin B3 or, or niacin. Initially, it was called nicotinic acid. And it turns out that that vitamin was actually sitting on the shelf of the laboratory of the guy who had coined the word vitamin. But he had used it to try to cure a different disease that was caused by a different vitamin deficiency. So it hadn't worked. Um, so the cure was actually sitting on the shelf the entire time for the sort of three or four decades when this disease ravaged the United States. Um, and it was even cheap. It was like 10 cents to treat this disease. But nobody knew that it, that was the cure. Um, and uh, ultimately, uh, they started putting vitamins into you know, flour and cereals. And that's why you don't really see those diseases anymore. And the trouble that they ran into initially is that it was called nicotinic acid. And so people started getting confused between nicotinic acid and, and nicotine. So you've got headlines like, um, uh, you know, cigarettes in your bread. Um, and so they convened this mm. conference of bakers and they came up with a few different possibilities for alternative names and, and niacin won out. And that's why it's called niacin when you go to the, you know, the drugstore and, and pick it up. Yeah, all, all the stories of the, uh, uh, the, the critical interventions of uh, vitamin supplements, it's also true with minerals, uh, which, are, which are real, 
have actually caused what could be the opposite uh, kind of uh, toxi toxicity uh, problem where people take hyperdoses and megadoses of different vitamins with the theory of a little bit can make you better, a lot can make you much better and cure various diseases. And that creates its own toxicity. So virtually every vitamin uh, has been given in these huge doses. And you can see when you buy things, 5,000% of normal, 50 times the the normal and you think well that that's great and th that's oftentimes uh, very bad you're exactly right that it's gone the other direction most of us are not deficient in any vitamins um, and uh, and when we see folks in clinic often people say you know which vitamin should i be buying and the answer really is unless you can prove that you're deficient in it you don't really need it right. um, and the one we really think of is b12 um, that sort of that's the most common vitamin deficiency that you see causing um, cognitive symptoms in, in sort of everyday life. Um, but even, you know, most people aren't actually deficient, so most people don't actually need to, to take it. Uh, but yeah, you're exactly right that it's swung completely the opposite direction. And, and if, you, if you do, I, I, I sometimes take a multiple vitamin. I take about a, a quarter of what they recommend, and I do it because it's, it has a very nice placebo effect. <laughs> so you know, I, I give in to to my own uh, my own superstition by taking very little, so it's not toxic, and enough to uh, kind of give you that that placebo effect seems to work. So, <laughs> <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> so, um, what I what I want to talk to you seriously about, I mean, the work that you're doing and, and the work that these science did was a major contribution. But um, do, do we have it again in the area of the pendulum swinging the other direction? Is there a danger today of reducing all mental aberra aberrations to molecules, seeking a pharmacological solution as the primary protocol? And it's an easier route. I mean, you just prescribe something. You know, what, in your, in your opinion, seeing the power of uh, molecular medicine uh, in cognitive issues, what is the role of various talk therapies, which is obviously harder, more expensive, more uncertain, for example, in phobias or in uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorders, uh, um, where uh, techniques of desensitization or habituation therapies, exposure and response uh, therapies, uh, these are all kind of cognitive behavioral therapies, uh, seem to work, uh, at least in some cases. Uh, what, what is your feeling in terms of being overconfident in pharmacological solutions to cognitive problems? Yeah, so I think, you know, I have to say, for the most part, the idea is that these should work synergistically. So we use a lot of talk therapy in our treatments, you know, that the limitation that we sometimes encounter is at some point in the course of dementia, some people lose insight or they have language problems. And so then talk therapy, you know, it, it doesn't help that much. If, if part of the disease is losing insight into the disease, talking through it's not going to help. And if part of the disease is not being able to speak, you know, talk therapy is problematic. But other than that, so when people who are milder and aren't having language problems, we, we use it extremely often. Because even though, you know, in trying to find a cure, it, these, t these types of diseases, I think, will ultimately come to a molecular solution. I think that is the, the wave of the future. That is where we are going. When you look at the, all the trials for Alzheimer's disease, the vast majority are target, targeted at particular molecules. Yeah. But in terms of how you cope with the disease, that's a totally different question. And talk therapy is extraordinarily useful, both for our patients, but also for their, their caregivers. And also for different types of cognitive disease. As I said, I mentioned, uh, you know, beyond dementia, 
will expand your your uh, your remit beyond beyond dementia for other kinds of cognitive issues. Again, I mentioned phobias or obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, talk therapy, at least at this stage, may be a primary one. Although ultimately, uh, at least in OCD, that might be a molecular solution as well. In so many of the talks that I've given, someone raises their hand and says, "You know, do we have a molecular cause for schizophrenia yet?" Um, and it's, you know, it's not my field. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, trained enough to to speak to it. Um, but I think you're exactly right that there's this um, thought to of, you know, we have to push all of these things towards a molecular solution. And I don't think they all will end up having a molecular solution. They're not all going to be uniform diseases. I think that's a very important point. Um, my my experience with uh, schizophrenia and the molecular solution was uh, when I was first year medical school, uh, and this was in the early '60s. A uh, very famous biochemist, Seymour Ketty, came in and he said, you know, I, I, he told the story of, of a group of scientists feeling absolutely certain that they had isolated the schizophrenia ward in the, in the mental institution. And all of them had one type of metabolite that none other had. They published their papers until somebody pointed out they were given a different brand of coffee in that <laughs> in the schizophrenia ward, and that was the metabolite of the coffee. So we have to be careful. <laughs> um, as, a, as a dementia doctor, uh, j just take, take me through without a specific patient. What do you literally do? Let's say, you know, I come into your office or bring a parent or whatever. What are what, just a few minutes of the process of, of the kind of activities that you have? Yeah. So um, the biggest thing is people come in with a family member or a friend, typically. And that's one thing that makes our visits different than, you know, when you go to, a, you know, a different doctor, yeah, typically. Right. Um, and so the beginning really is figuring out what's the narrative, what, what's happened, both in the perspective of the patient and the perspective of the person they've come with, because these are not always the same thing. And mm -hmm. we know, you know, in Alzheimer's disease, one of the earliest things is many people lose insight into what's going on. The, there's a little bit of a sort of adage in the field of, you know, if the patient comes in and says, I'm having a problem and the, you know, the, the spouse says they're fine, then they're probably okay. But if the patient says, I'm totally fine. And the spouse says they can't remember anything, you've got a problem. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of it is figuring out, you know, what's the narrative and what's the impression of what's happened over time in, in both perspectives. And in particular, what was the early symptom? Because all these diseases, you know, at the end, they all look the same. It's someone who's frail, who's in bed, who's not moving, who's not vocalizing, you know, picking up bed sheets. They, um, they look the same at the very end, but at the beginning, they look very different. Um, and so what we try to do is pick out from the story, what are the different clues that can help us figure out what's going on? Um, so the first question is, you know, is there a neurodegenerative process going on? And that's you know, a first big question we ask ourselves. And, and you think of that on two levels. So one is, what's someone's function like? Do they have a functional impairment? Are they not able to do things that they used to do? And, and the other is, you know, can we use the symptoms that they're having and the cognitive testing that we do to try to figure out uh, you know, what's going on at their, in their brain under a microscope, even though we can't touch the brain? Um, so basically, what we're using is lots and lots of different proxies to try to figure out what's going on in the brain at a microscopic level without ever accessing the brain. And that's really the name of the game in terms of what, we, uh, what we're trying to, to do. Um, and so uh, a part of this is that cognitive testing. So we ask people to, you know, to remember things and draw things and repeat things yeah, and, uh, and all sorts of tasks that, uh, that seem strange, but actually have been well validated in, uh, in teaching us about what their, you know, how is their executive function, meaning their, their multitasking or organization or their memory 
or do they have a particular language problem? Do they have trouble seeing uh, borders and space? And so you take their history, you take the cognitive testing, oftentimes we get imaging, um, and then you try to put it all together and say, you know, what's the problem? So dementia basically just means there's a progressive process that's causing people to have functional impairment. But it's not that useful of a term because it doesn't tell you what's really going on. The question we're saying is, what's the cause of dementia? What's the microscopic problem? Is it Alzheimer's disease? Is it Lewy body disease? Is it frontotemporal dementia? Is it something else? Do the initial signs in those cases differ or are they all relatively similar, you know, forgetting things or disorientation? So there's some overlap, but classically they actually are, are quite different. So the classic Alzheimer's disease is a, a pure memory problem. Frontotemporal dementia typically either starts with behavioral problems, so people become really socially inappropriate or apathetic, um, or these unusual language problems. And Lewy body disease, the classic story is someone who shows up and says, you know, I've been seeing people and I know that they're not real, but they look really vivid to me. Um, or I see animals and they look real. Um, so they have these well-formed hallucinations and they're classically, they're not threatening, um, but uh, but they're really, you know, surprising. Um, or you might have them say, um, you know, their spouse sometimes will say, you know, their, their sleep's become so active. I had to put bed rails on the bed because otherwise they'll fall out of bed. Or I've gotten punched, you know, I've had to go to the emergency room because they punched me while they were sleeping. And uh, so they actually have, you know, these different uh, sort of um, profiles at the beginning and there's some overlap. So we're not perfect, um, but they uh, they do look different at the beginning. And that's sort of what helps us sort it out. So I have this little cup where I put my gym keys. If I don't put it in that cup, I'm going to forget where I put it. And, uh, you know, maybe I should worry about that, except I've been using that little cup for keys since I've been 16 years old and couldn't find my keys in college uh, in, in, in my dorm room. So uh, I'm, I'm not so worried. But l l let me tell you seriously, uh, uh, my mother had dementia. She died at 102 about five years ago. Uh, she had dementia for a few years. Um, only in the last year or so uh, was it very serious where she'd go months without being able to say a word, yet she recognized me when I was there. Yet when she had music therapy, which we had a couple times a week, she could sing the old songs fluently and did. But other than the music had absolutely not a word. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, very little, zero for months on end, except during music therapy. Yeah, so it's that's this incredible demonstration of how um, uh, focal these brain processes can be. Um, it's sort of that's what was established with frontotemporal dementia with the history is it's not the whole brain's not gone. There are parts that are preserved and music often tends to be in, in the more common forms of dementia. Music is often preserved. The other thing that sometimes is preserved in some of them is sort of procedural things. So you'll have people who were, you know, someone who was a, you know, a famous ballerina who could still do the moves that they did when they were 16, even though, you know, they have no idea who their daughter is. Um, and uh, so you get these sort of very strange phenomena. And we actually try to capitalize that on that when we think about keeping people engaged. So yeah, one of the things that we know slows down dementia is keeping people sort of intellectually and socially engaged. But it's hard to do if they can't follow directions. You know, how do you engage right. someone? Um, but music is, you know, one huge tool for that. Um, it's really just remarkable. Yeah. And what was remarkable, not only did my mother keep the beat with her foot or but with her hand, but she verbalized the words fa fairly accurately. Uh, so it, it was it was verbal. And so there was the recall, the ability to recall the specific words, of the songs, even though, you know, she didn't know what the words meant at that time. I have to tell you a couple of incidents that occurred because it, 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 it so struck me. Again, this is after 
months and months of zero talk of any kind. There were two two incidents, and I'd go there many times a week and sit there and be with her, and I'd be working on my computer because I couldn't talk to her. And, and you know, I knew she didn't like that. She wanted me to pay more attention to her, even though we weren't able to talk. But I still had to do things like closer to truth or whatever I was doing. So I was working on my computer, and so suddenly. We were in a commons room, there were a lot of people around. After not talking for months, she she looked at me and said in perfect sentence English, and she was a very good student as as a, in in her young days. She said, "With all that junk you're doing on that machine, at least at least are you making any money?" <laughs> I mean, it was it was a startling thing that 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 shocked everybody in the, in the room. And in fact, I was working on it closer to the truth, and I wasn't making money. <laughs> uh, but but it was in perfect English. And the other occasion, and this is the only two times this has happened. Again, after months of silence, again we're in a big room, assisted living. Suddenly, to a nurse, she said in perfect English, "It's not that I cannot speak; it's that I don't want to talk to you." She was a very feisty lady, but um, but 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 what struck me was the fluency and the power and the the uh, the uh, the perfectly well thought after months of total silence and then back into silence. And that's so it's actually it's a common phenomenon and we don't really know why it happens. You know, there's this sort of thought of like, well, you know, the, the wires aren't totally connected, but maybe there's some connection and occasionally some signal gets through and voila, you have something that sounds cogent. Um, but but we really don't know why that happens. Um, and uh, But we hear it often, we'll hear people, you know, similar, you know, someone who hasn't said a word in months and they'll turn and say, you know, love you to their, you know, their partner. Yeah. Um, and, and it's these really, it's also a complex thing to experience because for partners, it's sort of, it's uplifting and fulfilling and wonderful, and then it goes away, and it's um, and it's hard to watch that. Yeah, but it it it, it did tell me that there's somebody really okay. there. There's somebody really there. So I mean, I'm, I'm telling it in a in a maybe a silly way, but it, it was very profound at the time. It's interesting the way that you tell it because I think that also reflects the way we usually see it, which is the things that come out usually are things that are sort of typical of the person's personality. Yeah. So it usually <laughs> is these like it's these things where the you know the people around say. Oh, that's totally them. Yeah, yeah. right, and, right. Uh, so it often is reflected. Like yeah, that. no. In, in my mother, that was a hundred percent. I mean, there was no doubt. <laughs> there was no, there was no ventriloquist in the background. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> are there lifestyle changes that can reduce the likelihood of dementia, especially if there are genetic uh, proclivities? Yeah, and there's good studies on this. So there's, um, you know, don't smoke, don't drink too much. Right. Um, but but also exercise has some of the best data. And um, there was a study looking at people with. Um, genetic causes of frontotemporal dementia. So these are people who, if they live long enough, they're essentially almost definitely gonna get disease. And it turned out that the top exercisers progressed 50% slower than the people who didn't exercise. Um, which is, a, I mean, no drug has that big of an effect on dementia. That's It's a huge, huge effect. Um, and most of the studies, it's something like 30 to 40 minutes a day, three to four days of something uh, aerobic. And that seems to be, you know, there's some effect of anaerobic stuff, but it really seems to be, aerobic activity that gives people the biggest benefit. The other big piece is social engagement. So there's a study back in the 80s that looked at um, how many social connections people have. So you essentially got oh. a point for having a spouse, a point for having a community, a point for you know talking to family at least if, you know a, a time a week or so. Um, and they looked and basically the more points you had, the slower you decline. 
Um, and that's been demonstrated over and over again. And the other piece is intellectual activity. And there, there's really no data for like a particular type of, of uh, intellectual activity. So it's not like we don't tell folks to go sign up for Lumosity or, you know, something else. You know, you don't have to buy a Sudoku book. If you don't like Sudoku, don't do it. Um, it's really a matter of what people enjoy because that's what they'll actually engage in. Um, and, you know, whether that's reading a book, whether it's listening to a podcast, whether it's watching, you know, watching Closer to Truth. <laughs> um, it's really a matter of finding something that uh, that you can participate in. And, and that also becomes a moving target because as people get more impaired, their intellectual capacity changes. Um, but the goal is to find something at each level that they can engage in. And, and the last piece, I mean, there, there's other things, but uh, but the other big piece that we talk to people out is diet. But diet, it, it's a complex thing in part because it's hard to study. You know, if I asked you, what did you eat yesterday? I suspect the list that you make would not be entirely accurate. Um, and if I told you to eat certain foods for the next three months, I suspect you wouldn't completely listen to me. Um, so it's hard to figure out what people have actually eaten and it's hard to change what people do. Um, the bulk of studies suggest that the Mediterranean diet or the MIND diet, which is sort of a variant of that, um, the bulk of studies really point to that being the most beneficial diet from a cognitive perspective. But you know, just a few months ago, there was a paper in the main neurology journal that basically said, you know, look, we looked at this and that made no difference at all. So it, it's really, um, it's a little harder. So I tend to say, you know, look, the, these diseases take things away from people. Um, and so you can't be perfect. Um, and so, you know, for diet, I tend to just say, you look, you know, everything in moderation and focus more on exercise and social engagement and intellectual engagement. Yeah. There's just really strong data for those. That makes sense. On the intellectual side, I know there have been companies that have been started that make various promises about game, mental games. And a lot of that has been uh, proven to be um, ineffective. It's certainly not damaging, but it is not as advertised, shall we say. But some studies that I, I recall is that when you do mental things that are that are hard, that are different than you've done, learning a musical, a new musical instrument at an advanced age, or learning a new language that is just struggled. I, I, you know, have that experience of difficult learning a new language. Um, that that actually has a better a statistical um, uh, impact. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. So doing new things is great. And um, the thing that you run into with things like, you know, like Lumosity is if you do Lumosity, you'll get better at Lumosity, but that doesn't mean you're going to actually get better in everyday life. Right. Um, but, um, but you're exactly right. Learning new skills um, is really, um, you get a lot of bang for your, for your buck for that. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn a ping pong a back, a very tough backhand. So that's, that's my that idea. <laughs> I get my aerobics and my Physical mental activity, social. Yeah, well, all the well, less social. I'm not very social when I'm trying to do that. But uh, the, <laughs> the the aerobics and the mental challenge uh, that that's what I'm up for. Uh, how about people who are uh, just diagnosed with early stage dementia? Are the lifestyle changes the same to try to slow it, as opposed to you know just uh, uh, prophylactically to try to stop preventative? Is, is there any different any differences? There's not really a big difference. So the th these have been studied in both contexts. Um, so it's been studied in people who are cognitively normal, and it's been studied with people who right. have diagnoses. And it turns out it's really about the same. Uh, it's really the same approach. Um, look, uh, I'm going to throw uh, kind of a a, uh, a curveball question at you, um, <laughs> and that deals with again one of closer to truth's uh, core areas. We have these three big core areas. One 
is cosmos, cosmology, and second is consciousness, the nature, and the third is meaning, where we deal with questions in theology and atheism. So in the question of consciousness, uh, uh, the big question, if we had to put one question, is is consciousness the the inner phenomenology, the phenomenal consciousness of this inner experience that we have, is it 100% physical? Everybody knows it relates, has to relate to the brain. But is, is, uh, is the brain, well, we know it's necessary, but is it sufficient? So that's the big question. And many physicalists argue that all the precise correlations between physical properties uh, that you, or, or physical characteristics that you, you exhibit, and the, the the physical cause for that demonstrates that consciousness is entirely physical, um, and 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 arguments and and really every piece of data in your book, although that's not your purpose, uh, every piece of data in your book would be used by those people who say that consciousness is a hundred percent physical, and just read Dr. Peskin's book if you're not convinced, uh, and certainly all that would be uh, convincing. Uh, are you convinced that that's the case? So I should I should say I'm a horrible philosopher. Um, so uh, so I, I don't know if my my thoughts have any validity. But you know my sense from studying this stuff is we've learned a lot about ways where um, you know you can destroy consciousness. So there's lots of different ways where we can you know have a certain stroke and someone's suddenly unconscious or a trauma and someone's unconscious. But we are not actually that far in figuring out the constructive aspect of it. How is consciousness actually built from the ground up? And you know, it's hard for me to imagine ever getting to a point where science can actually say, you know, you can actually build consciousness from the ground up to the point of the human brain. There really seems to be still something um, kind of inaccessible about the essence of the human brain. And I don't think we're anywhere close to that. Um, it's really understanding how it's constructed. Most of science is, you know, is or most of what we study is you know, it's disease. It's where, you know, there's a problem and then you can go back and say, oh, well, clearly this part was necessary, but it's exactly as you're saying. Yeah, you know, we can figure out what pieces are necessary for consciousness, but I don't see us being anywhere close to actually understanding sort of the the essence of it. Yeah, and maybe I'm just too short-sighted, but uh, but I, I have a hard time seeing it. Sounds like you're a pretty good philosopher to me. Uh <laughs> Many thanks, Sarah. It's really a terrific book, recommended for everybody, a great read, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Uh, viewers can watch hundreds of videos on consciousness, brain-mind interactions, when brains go bad, on the Closer to Truth website and Closer to Truth YouTube channel. Thank you again, Sarah, and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks so much. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.